Hey, I came across a uh, story recently that reminded me of uh, Mother's Day, Father's Day, and our ongoing study of the Book of Romans, kind of all wrapped together in one, so I thought that you might enjoy it. Here it is. It says, whenever our kids are out of control, you can take comfort from the thought that God's omnipotence did not extend to God's kids, since he gave them the freedom to make choices, freedom to obey or disobey. It says, after creating heaven and earth, God created Adam and Eve, and the first thing he said was, don't. Adam said, don't what? God said, don't eat the forbidden fruit. Forbidden fruit? We got forbidden fruit. Hey, Eve, we got forbidden fruit. Eve, no way. Adam, yes way. He said, don't eat the fruit, God says to Adam. Adam said, well, why? God says, because I'm your father and I said so. And he was wondering at that point why he hadn't stopped after making the elephants. A few minutes later, God saw his kids having a fruit break and became angry and said, didn't I tell you not to eat the fruit? Adam, uh-huh. Then why'd you do so? Eve, I don't know. Adam, she started it. Eve did not. Adam did too. Eve did not. <laughs> Having had it with the two of them, God's punishment was that Adam and Eve should have children of their own. <laughs> Thus the pattern was set. But there is reassurance in the story. If you have persistently and lovingly tried to give wisdom and counsel to your children and they haven't heard it nor taken it from you, if God had trouble handling his children, it makes you think, it, what, what makes us think it would be a piece of cake handling our own? So here is the advice for the day. If you have a lot of tension and you get a headache, do what it says on the aspirin bottle. Take two and keep away from children. <laughs> so there you go, whatever that's worth. There's uh, something in human nature uh, makes us want to uh, go to extremes, and becoming Christians uh, does not automatically uh, set us up um, from or set us free from this weakness. In uh, Romans chapter six and verse and chapter seven, if you've got your Bibles, open it with me. We see this problem addressed by the Apostle Paul. It says chapter seven will focus our attention on Christians. This particular subject, the the entire chapter, has to do with Christians and the law. But before uh, we go to this particular area and before we look at chapter 7, we need to review what we've learned to date in chapter 6. If you recall in chapter 6, if you've got your Bibles open, the theme of the chapter was introduced to us in the first verse where we read the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace might increase? The extreme argument of Paul's day, as well as many even in our own day, is this. Since we are not saved, quote, saved being saved from the punishment and condemnation of sin since we're not saved from sin by working our way into some some shape or manner that's more pleasing to God in our life you know the, the, the to-do list and things like that since we're not saved um, by works and we're saved by grace the immediate response was then what difference does it make how we live our life so the argument of the day is, you know what, we might as well continue just to live as we've always lived because it has nothing to do with how we live or how we don't live. It's God's grace and His grace alone. It's by faith that we're saved. through. The, it's a gift of God, so no one can brag or boast. So the extreme argument of the day was simply this. Hey, you know what, we'll just live any way that we want to live, and what difference does it make? And that particular argument that we look at, as we'll see, has to do with the whole idea of what we'll call license. Now, license means very simply this, in everyday language and a term that we can all grasp is this. Have you ever heard someone say, if you tell him or her that, you will give them a license to, for example, you, you say that to them, it's like giving them a license to steal. 
in the construction industry, which I happen to, to find myself on a regular basis, you know, uh, someone may just give you a blanket PO or they may just say it's time and material or what they call a T&M job. You just go out on the job, whatever labor you put in, whatever material you put in, you just say here it is and you mark it up and you send them a bill. Well, in, in that industry, what people say, it, like, if you do that, it's just a license for someone to steal from you because you have no way of regulating how long they were there, what materials they actually used, and so you need to negotiate it or bid it up front so that you don't give someone a license to steal. See, in a simple, in a simple sense, that's the same as true in our spiritual life where someone would argue, look, you know what, if it doesn't matter how we live our life and we teach grace, that it's by God's grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves, it's a gift from God. If we teach that, the fear is that we're going to give people a license to live their life any way that they want. So the extreme argument was over here, and that was a license to do what we want. Now the other side of it is, there will be people who will come and say, no, no, wait, don't be teaching grace. Because if we teach grace, what's going to happen is that people will do whatever they want to do, and in a lot of ways they won't do what we think they should do. So if we start to teach grace, it's going to be a license for people just to do whatever they want to do. So the other side of it is always this. We agree, the other side says, that we're saved by God's grace through faith. We agree with that. Then they always follow it with this. But. But what? Well, but we also feel that it's very important how we live our life and how you and I should live our life will be determined by the list that we comprise, the list of things that we can do, the things that we can't do, the, thing, the things that we should do, the things that we shouldn't do. And what's, what's frightening about the other extreme is that all of a sudden the things that I believe I should do, I then impose upon you that you should do. And if you're not doing those things, then I hold that against you as if somehow or another you're not on the same spiritual level as I am, and the opposite extreme of license is legalism. So somewhere along the line in our Christian experience, we find ourselves either on one end or the other, and as is often the case, extremes are a dangerous place to be. Somewhere in the middle is where we need to be, and that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Now, if you recall, Paul answered the first group in Romans 6 by clearly telling us that Christians, and remember, it's God who defines what a Christian is or who a Christian is, and throughout the book of Romans, we've learned that a Christian is a person Starting off, first of all, a Christian formerly was a non-believer who was dead in Adam, the Bible says, came into the world, stamped the sinner on our very soul. We were dead in Adam. There's nothing good in us, any of us. There's nothing good at all. None are righteous. No, not one. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. This has been the lead up throughout the book of Romans so that we can identify with what God says, and that is that we are all lost and on our way to hell. We are all born into the world condemned. John 3, 16, 17, and 18 says Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn it because the world had already been condemned when Adam sinned against God and rebelled against him. From that moment on, all of us were born into the world as sinners. So Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. When were we lost? Hey, we were lost when Adam sinned. Even before we were ever conceived or came into the world, we were lost. And so it wasn't something you or I did at some moment in time that turned us away from God. We were born in that condition. So the Bible says, as we, as we look at what the Bible clearly teaches, that Paul addresses the group in Romans 6 by clearly telling us that Christians, those non-believers who came to a point of recognizing what I just said was true according to the Word of God, that you and I are born into the world, alienated from God, in rebellion against God, have turned from God, and we demonstrate it by the way we live our life, that we are sinners, that, we, that we've turned from God. When we recognize that as true, that is called confession. 
agreeing with what God says is simply what confession means. Agreeing with what God says. What does God say? He says, Chuck, you're a sinner. Do you agree with me? Yes, I agree with you. What do I got to do about it? You can't do nothing about it. Well, what, what can be done about it? I did everything for you. I sent Jesus Christ. I loved you so much that I sent Jesus Christ to this earth to die in your place on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave. The word gave indicates giving up for the purpose of accomplishing something. It had to do with the idea of sacrifice. He gave us His Son. He was sacrificed on our behalf. He died on the cross for my sin. And He rose three days later. And God says, Chuck, if you believe that, if you believe on Him, there's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved, but if you believe on Him, you shall be saved. The moment that you and I recognize we're sinners before God, there's nothing good in and of ourselves, there's nothing that you and I can do to ever get into heaven or please God, that God did it all when he sent Jesus to die on the cross, the moment we believe that we're sinners separated from God, the moment we in faith respond to the finished work of Christ on the cross, he did it all. And three days later, he rose from the dead, indicating he is who he claimed to be, that he was God and God raised him from the dead. The Bible says, you shall be saved. Now, as a Christian... Paul addresses this whole idea that we have as non-Christians recognize that we're sinners, we identify ourselves with Christ. He died for our sins, we died with Him. He was buried, we were buried with Him. He rose from the dead, we have risen with Him. We are now alive and we're to walk in the newness of life. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things pass away, all things become new. There's a new way of living life. And that's through God's eyes and how God says it. Now, what's fascinating about this is, is that as a word picture that I like to use in my mind to help me identify with this whole process that takes place, in a moment of time we're declared just before God, and in the process over a lifetime we become more like Jesus, and God's goal for all of us is to conform us into the image of His Son, we become more and more like Jesus. But the bottom line is this, when I was not a Christian, when I did not believe what I just said that you needed to believe before I even heard that, before I responded to that, the Bible says that I was and you are chained to sin, that we serve sin, that sin is our master. The word picture that I like to use is that of an elephant. If you've ever seen a baby elephant in a circus with a little chain around its leg and a little shackle on its leg, you see an elephant who, when it's a, when it's a baby, is shackled to this, and I look at that shackle as sin. And as non-believers, we're shackled by sin. The Bible says that sin easily entangles us, that it's a snare, that, it, that it's, that it's a, you know, a shackle, so to speak, that we serve sin. So the shackle that's on our foot, as, as non-believers, we try to shake that shackle loose, but it only gives us so much room, the length of the chain, and then it pulls us back. We try to get freed from it, but we can't. And that little elephant can't get freed from the chain because it's not strong enough to do so. But what's fascinating is the elephant, as they continue to feed the elephant, and as the elephant gets bigger and the elephant grows, guess what? The elephant's a lot bigger than it's ever been before. Now, you take an elephant that weighs 6,000 or 8,000 pounds or whatever, and you got this little shackle on it that was holding it as an infant. The reality of it simply is this. If the elephant knew the shackle couldn't hold it anymore, it wouldn't take long for that thing just to go, get out of my face. But it can't do it. As soon as it pulls away, it feels a little tug. It immediately stops because it's been conditioned throughout its life to realize I can't break free of the shackle, so I don't even try anymore. Understand in a very simple way that when you and I identify ourselves with the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf, as we identify ourselves with his burial into the ground and then his resurrection from the dead, and we are alive in Christ and there's a new way of living, 
through Jesus Christ, we are now free from the power of the sin or the shackle. We will always be tempted. For those who question that, read James chapter 1. Let no man say what? When he's tempted, that I'm being tempted by God because God can't tempt us to do evil. But the reality or the statement of fact that the Bible teaches that you and I, even though we've identified ourselves with Christ, even though we've been, quote, born again, even though we're new creatures in Christ, we're alive in Christ, we're no longer dead in Adam, we're walking in newness of life, the reality is is that we're still going to be tempted to live the way we used to live. The difference is, through Jesus Christ, sin has been rendered powerless and we no longer serve the master of sin. We serve a risen master, a risen Savior. We serve Jesus Christ. And the Bible says the secret of the Christian life is that we live it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he answers the question that was raised in in, uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 1, when the question was asked, shall we continue to live in sin so God's grace may increase? And the answer is very simple, no. No. And he concludes it with a very convincing argument. Look at verse 23, Romans 6, 23. Think about this. He is talking to, at this point, believers. So in context, we're looking at his admonition to you and I. It's very simple, and that's this. For the wages of sin is death. Why in the world would any Christian want to continue to sin and, and experience the consequences of sin. The wages of sin is death. Sin brought forth the consequence of death. The wages of sin is death. Oftentimes we'll use this when we're sharing with non-believers. The wages of sin is death. I've used it many times when I've spoken at funerals, for example, and said, hey, the reason all of us die is because it's a consequence of sin. The reason that we know all of us are sinners is because all of us are going to die. And that's the evidence that we need. That there, simple as it can can get. Hey, why do we die? Because we're sinners. The wages of sin is death. But stop and think about it in the context in which we're reading it, and that is this. He is now dealing with us as believers, saying the same thing. Hey, don't you remember the wages of sin is death? Nothing good comes out of sin. I always like to say in our our men's Bible study, hey man, sin's overrated and and undercalculated. You know, sin will take you further than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And sin will cost you more than you were willing to pay. That's just simple the way, that's just a simple truth. One day, hopefully, we wake up like the prodigal son did and we're slopping with pigs going, what in the world am I doing here? Even my, even my father's servants have a better lifestyle up at the house than I do slopping with a bunch of pigs. Why? Because sin was overrated and undercalculated. Why? Because it kept him longer than he wanted to stay. It cost him more than he was willing to pay. So as we look at this, and he says, the wages of sin is death, but I love the big but there, and that is this. But what? The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. One thing that I didn't understand when I first became a Christian, every time I saw the words eternal life, I always put it in the context of in the future. You know, one day, you know, when we die as believers, the Bible promises absent from this body will be present with the Lord and will live eternally or will live forever with God. And, and I always looked at that as being the whole concept of eternal life. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's only part of the context of eternal life. The whole package has to do with Jesus Christ said, I came to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. Eternal life is a quality of life. Every human being will live eternally. The difference is whether they're going to experience eternal death 
or eternal life, whether we'll spend eternity with God in His presence because of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, or if we reject that sacrifice, we, th- those who do will live eternally, but they'll experience what the Bible says is eternal death. But it isn't death of annihilation. It's an eternal existence in a place of weeping and mourning and gnashing of teeth and eternal punishment and is separated from the very presence of God. But every person lives eternally. When Jesus said, I came to give you life and give it abundantly, it was eternal life that had to do with the quality of life that we can even experience here and now. Christianity is just not a part of, you know, just not about, hey, you know what, well, good, I got my eternity squared away because I trusted in Christ. Man, Christianity is we walk in the newness of life and we experience that abundant life today. The moment you and I put our faith and trust in Christ, we start to live that life today as we walk in obedience with Him. In chapter 6, he told the believers to stop doing bad things. The three words that he used were know, knowing what the Bible teaches, reckon or consider this to be true in your life, and then what? And then to yield your life as what? An instrument of righteousness unto God. Now, the summary is this. Lord, not my will be done, but yours. The prayer of the day last time we were together. Not my will be done, but yours and I'll yield my will to yours. Lord, what is your will in my life today? Which direction are you leading me? It has to do with the whole idea of knowing the truth, considering in our own life, and then yielding to those things. Now listen carefully. Chapter 7, he tells us how not to do good things. Isn't that interesting? He tells us how to stop doing bad things in chapter 6. Now he says, I'm going to tell you how to to not do good things in chapter 7. Because the desire is going to be to do good things and to say, don't do them that way. Let me just explain some things to you. Remember, we are justified, an act of God in a moment of time, how? Through faith. We are sanctified. What's the big word for what? Simply, we become more like Jesus over the course of our lives. And that is a process that God takes us through throughout our lifetime where justified in a moment of time. We are sanctified over our lifetime. But guess what? It's all through faith. The just shall live by faith. It is a theme of the book of Romans. We are justified by faith and we're to live by faith. So now, here's the deal. Every Christian understands the experience of Romans 6 and 7. I know I can relate to it and I'm sure that you can and that is this. At first we enter into thinking, I can keep living any way that I want. Then we begin to realize that, you know what, there's consequences with sin, for sin. Even though we're forgiven, and even though the son slopping with pigs was always a son, guess what, he experienced the consequence of slopping with the pigs. So the reality of it is we go, wow, you know what, there's consequences to that life or the license to do wrong before God. You know, I think I learned my lesson from that. He confessed his sin, he turned, he repented, he ran back home, his father came, forgave him. What a beautiful picture of a person who... misunderstood the the concept of license instead of liberty. Then, all of a sudden, you go to the other extreme and you start to have victory over sin when you're knowing the things that God teaches. uh, You know, you start to consider them in your own life. You start to yield in your life and you start to experience victory over sin. All of a sudden, here's what happens and here's what's happened in my life and that is this. I start to think, wow, I'm doing pretty good. I no longer struggle with fill in the blank. Wow, And then guess what happens? As soon as I start to say I no longer struggle with, it's like Peter said, Lord, I'll never deny you. Eh. I'll never deny you. Eh. 
He did. As soon as we start to think a little too highly of ourselves and think, oh, I don't struggle with this anymore, then guess what? Everything collapses. Everything falls apart. The more that we spend time in the Word of God, the more we realize how dirty we are. Isn't that true? The more we spend time in the Word of God, the more we realize how dirty we are. Why? Because the closer we come to perfection, the more readily our flaws become apparent. And so all of a sudden we think we're doing good and we realize we're not doing good. Probably the best illustration in Scripture is the Apostle Paul's own life, where at the beginning of his ministry, right after he had come to know Christ, the beginning of his ministry, he said this about himself. You know what? I am the foremost apostle. At the end of all of it, when, he, when death was approaching and he knew his time was, was limited here on earth and he believed that God was leading him to heaven, he said this, you know what? I'm the chief sinner. The closer that he got to Jesus, the more real, he realized how flawed he was. See, in the Christian journey, we're born in a moment of time, we begin to grow up in our faith, we begin to get more and more like Jesus, we grow closer to him, and then all of a sudden, guess what? We get really frustrated because we see that, you know what, in a lot of ways we thought we were making progress, but there's still a lot more work to be done. You know, we're all work in process, man. We're all under construction. And the more we realize it, the more frustrating it can get. So by simple definition, what is license? License is that extreme position over here that it doesn't matter how we live as Christians. Legalism is the extreme position over here that, uh, that believes that one can become holy and please God by obeying laws by somehow or another measuring spirituality by a list of do's and don'ts. You know, we come up with it, you know, I'm going to read my Bible every day, I'm going to go to church every week, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm not going to do this anymore, I'm not going to do that anymore, I'm not going to do these things anymore, I'm going to do, 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 don't, 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 get a whole long list of things, and then we start to keep track of it as if somehow or another that's going to make us more pleasing to God. See, the problem with that is Jesus openly confronted religious people, people who were more concerned about the externals than the internals, by saying to them, he said, you know what, you're just a bunch of whitewashed sepulchers. And what he was talking about was there was a, there was a, a, a cultural um, um, thing that was done in those days to clean up cemeteries, especially around uh, religious holidays. They would clean them up. They would take whitewash or paint and they'd clean up everything to make it look a lot nicer. It'd be like going to a cemetery and you see all these nice whitewashed tombstones. Wow, doesn't this look good? From the outside, it looks good, but Jesus always reminded religious people who try to live an external life pleasing to God. He said, hey, you know what? You look good on the outside, and everybody looking at you thinks you're okay, and everything's going good, but you know what? You're filthy, dirty, rotten, dead within. What was he trying to tell them? You're dead in Adam. And the law should have pointed them to the fact that they were dead if they had studied and were open to the law and the Spirit of God teaching them. They were saying, man, you know what? We're lost and we're dead. But they try to dress up the outside. That's what people do in the world today. They go to church so they can dress up the outside. They do things so they can dress up the outside. But God says, unless you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're filthy, rotten, dirty, you're dead within, and there's nothing on the outside that's going to fool me because I know your heart. So stop playing games. So then we become Christians and we think, wow, you know what? If I could just somehow or another continue to keep this list of do's and don'ts, then everything's going to go great in my life. The problem with that person is they don't understand the law, the purpose of God's law, and they don't understand the relationship between law and grace and how it all works together. Let me give you an illustration. Friday night, uh, we were at a function, and there was a uh, young man. And you know what just really drives me crazy? When I, when I call people a young man. He was probably 30-something. 
That's troubling. That's troubling. There was a man about my age. And he was struggling with something. And he was struggling with this. And we began to talk. And he said, uh, you know, I don't really know if I'm a Christian. I said, well, why, why are you struggling with that? He goes, I just don't, you know, I don't feel like I'm a Christian. I don't, I don't know if I really am. And so we, we went through basically a quick review. Hey, has there ever been a point in your life where you recognize that what God says is true, that you're a sinner, that you're separated by God? And he said, yeah. He said, did you ever recognize that and admit that to God? Yeah, I did. So did you realize that Jesus Christ came to die for your sins? Have you ever responded in faith to what he did for you? He said, yeah, I did. In fact, he goes, my favorite Bible verse is God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish. I said, so you've done that? He said, yes, I have. I said, well, the Bible says that you're a child of God to those who believe in his name. At that moment in time, you were declared just before God. I said, so why are you struggling? He goes, well, if, 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 I'm, not, if I'm not a Christian, then, then I feel like I lost my salvation. So why do, you, why do you feel that way, or why do you think that way? And here's what he said. He says, because I can't live the Christian life. He said, I just can't live the Christian life. I thought, well, what is the Christian life? What do you think you can't do? And see, his conclusion was that because he had failed in his list of things he believed he had to do to be pleasing to God, he began to question and to doubt his very relationship to God and the truth that's taught clearly in Scripture. What I have found in my experience dealing with people is that there are those who are frustrated about not living the Christian life because they have a list of things to do and they fail because they can't do it, or because they are doing things they know to be wrong before God and they can't believe that God would still love them as a child when they are deliberately in rebellion against God. And the illustration is very simple. For that person, I always say, look, I mean, you, you, you have children, and even when your children are rebelling against you, they're still your children. Now, your fellowship is going to be severed or it's going to be interfered with by sin. I said, this is the same as true as God, with God. You know, we don't have the same fellowship with God as a believer when we're walking in rebellion against Him. You can't have the same kind of relationship, but you're still a child. A child is a child regardless of behavior. His concern was, I can't live this life. How many of you can relate to that? You try and you try and you just fail and you fail and you get more and more miserable and it gets more and more frustrating. Here's the problem. Trying to live the Christian life, a holy life, based on following a set of rules or regulations or self-imposed standards, let me just tell you right up front, it's impossible. You will drive yourself crazy. Let me give it to you in terms that I think most people will understand. A sports illustration. <laughs> hey, it's been almost 30 minutes. So I'm, I'm getting better. Here's the illustration. Here's how I remember Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, the whole idea of license, is like a baseball player entering the game with an attitude you know what? It doesn't matter today how I play. I got a guaranteed contract. So I think I'll just go 0 for 4. In fact, I think I'll strike out four times today. Who cares? I got a guaranteed deal. Romans chapter 7, 
a baseball player goes up to the plate and he says, I have to go four for four today and I have to hit four home runs because I don't have a guaranteed contract and if I don't go four for four, then guess what? I'm going to get cut from the team. I have to produce. I have to perform. If I don't do it, then guess what? I'm going to get cut. The difference between both of those, I mean, the reality in both is this. Both are a formula or a recipe for disaster. They're both a formula for failure as Christians. If you enter into the game of life and you have an attitude, it doesn't matter how I live because God can't cut me because I read the book and I know exactly what he has to say, then you haven't read enough of it because he also says the wages of sin is death. You need to read a little bit more. It's wonderful to know you have a guaranteed contract and you're not going to get cut. But if anything, it also should motivate you to give 100% and to play your best because the other person has enough faith or confidence in you that they did what they did for you. So as a response to that, you just want to go out and, and demonstrate to them that, hey, you know what, Lord, you know what, I just want to let you know that you're shedding your blood on the cross for me isn't in vain because I will glorify you with my body. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now the other side of it is this. When we start to say, I have to do this, I have to do that, if I don't do this, if I don't do that, then God won't love me anymore. That is not true from a biblical standpoint. God's love is unconditional. If we've experienced conditional love in our lifetime, we carry that to our relationship with God and it really messes us up. The important thing to note in Romans chapter 7 is the personal pronoun I is used 30 times. Me is used 12 times my four times, and myself once. Don't miss this point. In fact, if you want to have fun, just go through it and, and uh, underline or circle all those as you're studying it on your own. But don't miss this. The personal pronoun is used 47 times in this chapter. It is the perfect picture of a defeated Christian who depends upon himself. When you and I depend upon ourself and our performance, we will fail, and fail miserably. Two things usually happen. One, we start to become pretenders. We lead people to believe something on the outside that isn't true in our heart because we continue to fail, but we don't want to let people know that we're failing and struggling, so we just let them see what we want them to see. The other side of it is exactly what this young man was experiencing on Friday when I spoke to him, and that was this. You know what? I can't do this anymore. I'm just bailing out. You know what? I don't want to be part of this anymore because I can't do this. It's too hard. It's too much work. I can't get up and go to church every Sunday. I can't read my Bible every day. I wanted to read my Bible in a year and go through it in a year, and I got down to three, you know, I got the first three days, and man, you know how many passages and pages are in the Bible? I, I can't do it. You know what, I'm, and I'm working on my language and I was out on the job site and somebody said something and I blew up and, and, I, and I failed again. Or I was out with some friends and they started having drinks and I said, I'm never going to drink again. And before I know it, I had a couple of them before I knew it, I was drunk. And I, you know what, and here I am again. Or I got up today and I said, I'm not going to lie today. And the first phone call I got, oh man, I lied to cover my bases. And I can't do this. I quit. See, that's what happens when we live the Christian life at one extreme or the other. Now we're ready for Romans chapter 7, which basically, as an outline, is going to be broken out like this. We're going to see in the first six verses 
what we'll call the, our deliverance from legalism is going to be found in the authority of the law. The authority of the law, verses 1 through 6. Next time we get together in a couple of weeks will be the ministry of the law and the inability of the law. And that's going to be a very simple outline that we're going to take a look at. But for right now, open your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 7, and I want to show you the authority of the law and how we are delivered from the law, how we delivered from the law in this particular passage. Romans chapter 7, 1 through 6. He says this, Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? It says, For the married woman is bound by law to give it to her husband while she's living, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. It says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. It says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which, passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit of death. But now we have been released from the law, having died so that we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. In this particular passage, what Paul does, he takes something and illustrates, uh, illustrates for us a very simple truth. The illustration is a simple one, but it's profound. And, and remember, first of all, notice what he says in verse 1. He says, don't you know? I love that. For I'm speaking to those who know the law. The wonderful thing about the Bible is this. Anytime we're confused about anything, we immediately go back to the Bible for clarification and there's our answer. The most confused people that I've ever met in life are people that have no standard from which, they, which all of their beliefs spring. Have you ever talked to somebody who doesn't believe the Bible? Well, I don't believe that. Or I believe some of it, I don't believe all of it. I believe this part, I don't believe that part. I, what, 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 what do you believe? Well, here's what I believe. Well, why do you believe that? What's it based on? Well, I don't know. It doesn't take long for them to get so confused and to get you so confused unless you understand that everything that we believe as Christians is founded upon the Word of God. We believe the Bible. We're here to study the Bible. We teach the Bible. We preach the Bible. Why? Because we believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God in written form, that it is without error in the original manuscripts, that it is exactly what it proclaims to be, the very Word of God in writing. Everything that I believe as a Christian is founded upon the Word of God. So when I have a question about how to live my life or what God wants to do in my life, i got to go back to the Bible. And what he's saying is, in essence, is this. Well, don't you know? You should know by now if you've read the Bible or you know the laws of God. You should know this already. And the point that he uses is this. He says, or don't you know? He goes back to the whole idea of marriage. Notice what he's saying. God's plan from the beginning, Genesis 2.24 was that a man and a woman, a man would leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife and the two would become one flesh and they would stay together throughout the course of their lifetime. That's God's plan for marriage. You wouldn't know it today, but it's still God's plan. All right? He's saying, now take that illustration and let me explain the spiritual truth to you. The married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. That's the simplicity of, the, of God's program. If you're married, your husband dies, you're now free to get married. goes on to say, as if that woman would leave her husband and marry another man, then she would be an adulteress because she would be living in adultery. She would be living in sin, according to God. And the law in the Old Testament was very simple. The illustration doesn't carry out any further because if you were convicted, or, uh, convicted of committing adultery, you were killed. 
So you don't have to really worry about extending this too far. So he's not teaching us about marriage and divorce. He's teaching us about what he wants us to understand as far as the Christian's relationship to the laws of God. So he uses the illustration and says, if your husband dies, then you are free as a woman to marry again. Okay, you got it? Now he says in verse 4, therefore... The whole purpose of him telling this is so that we would understand it. Therefore, what's it there for? It's to teach us the truth, and the truth is this, that the Christian is dead to the law. Therefore, you're dead to the law. Notice what he says. Therefore, my brethren, in verse 4, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. Notice what he's saying. You and I, who have trusted in Christ, are dead to the laws of God. We're dead to it. We have died with Christ. We now live with Christ. The law has not the same authority over our life that it has on the life of a non-believer. The law is still valid. The law is still used by God to help people see that they're guilty before God. For example, the Ten Commandments are, you shall have no other God before me. The reality is, do you always put God first in your life? Or does your career come first? Or do relationships come first? Or do money come first? Or do what your plans are and your goals are, do they come first? If they do, the law is used by God to teach you you're guilty. Have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever coveted, which is wanting something that someone else has? Have you ever seen someone's new car and said, wow, I wish I had that, or their house, or their dress, or their looks, or the whatever it is, or their height? And you say, wow, I wish I had that. Then you're guilty of coveting. God uses the law today to convict sinners of their sinfulness. The law is still valid and it's still in place and it's still doing the purpose that it was to do which was to convict the world that we are sinners outside of Christ and guilty as God says. The law also helps us to go and points us to Jesus as a tutor for the law is a teacher or tutor to lead us to Jesus Christ. Once we know we're guilty, the next question is what do we do about it? And the law leads us to the fact we can't do nothing. Jesus Christ did it all. Then we accept what he's done on our behalf and that's how the whole program works. It's awesome. It's a good program God came up with. But we're dead to the law. So when you and I trusted Christ, we were united with him and we died to the law. So what we need to recognize and understand, the law is still in existence, it's still condemning people, but the bottom line is we are no longer alive to the law or the old authority in our life. We serve a new master, a risen savior, Jesus Christ. Let me give you an illustration that I heard. I don't know how true this is or not, but it makes the point. There's a woman who lived in the South, and this is before the Civil War days, and she was married to her husband who owned the plantation, and within a short period of time afterwards, he, he got sick and he died. I don't know what he died of, so don't go there. So he died. You know, he started getting all these questions. It's like my wife and I are conversation. Well, what, what was wrong with him? No, that's not, no, no, that's not, it. we're not going there. He died, okay? He just died. That's not the point of the story. He died. When he died, his wife missed him so much that she didn't want to bury him, but she had him embalmed and sat him in a chair in the entryway of their mansion in a glass case so that he wouldn't rot and decay, and he was sitting in this chair, and and his corpse was there, so every time she came in, she saw her old man. There he was. Well, her friends got a little concerned about this, and they said, you know, you might want to travel a little bit. And so she went north, then she went overseas, and she was over in Europe for a couple of years, and she met a new guy. And she got married. After they fell in love, she got married. And it was time to go home. So they came home. And her new husband wanted to do what the new husband's supposed to do, picked her up, 
kicked open the door and went, oh, oh, and dropped her. And he said, what is that? Who is that? And she said, well, that was my old husband. And they determined at that point it was probably a good time to bury him, to put him away forever. Put him away. So they buried him. Now here is the tie-in to all this. There is one. When you and I are buried with Jesus Christ, when we die with him, when we're buried with him, when we're raised with him, we're now to walk with him and to lay aside the old self. The old self is buried. The old self is dead. We are now alive in Christ. I want to put that away because part of the old man was this. In my life, God, if you're there, what do I got to do to somehow or another please you? I know I'll come up with a list of things. Or we get plugged into churches who teach that you have to do a list of things. Supposedly leading us to God, but leading us further and further away from God. If you do all the things that we say you're supposed to do, then you'll be okay. We can't put it in writing or guarantee it, but this is what we think. And then when enough of you don't like some of the things that we told you to do, because now it's a different day and age, we'll eliminate some of those. We'll do random samples. We'll poll exit polls. Why aren't you coming to our church anymore? Well, we don't like the thing about this. We're going to have a meeting. God revealed to us, number six, can get put away. We're going to add number 47 to make up for number six, but we'll get rid of number six if it means we can keep you coming back because after all, we need your money to keep this thing going. See, in that old man day, I bought into the lie that many of us buy into and that is that somehow we got to do stuff to please God. We hope that we do enough and we sure hope that what we're being told is true. But the Bible says that's not true at all. You can't do enough. I can't do enough. There's no long list. What you've got to do is you've got to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone and His finished work on the cross, His resurrection from the dead. I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Period. And it cuts out all the rest of the programs and the systems that are out there and all the religions of the world. Jesus Christ separates Himself from everything because He is a jealous God and you shall have no other gods before Him. You see, that is the reality of being dead in Adam, dead because we're under the law, and we are no longer under the law, we're under Christ. And we serve a different master. That's why in Galatians 2.20, when the Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Him. I identify with His crucifixion, and it's no longer I who live. Get rid of the I's and the me's and the myself. This isn't about you, and it's not about me. It's not about me trying to live a life pleasing to God, because I can't do it. You can't do it. All you'll do is get frustrated and fail. But it's about this. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. But what? But Christ who lives through me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Here's how this all ties together. I can't live the Christian life. And neither can you. But Jesus Christ can live through us. And through him we have victory over sin. 
I can't get pulled away from the chain. See, we need to know the truth. Why? Because the truth sets us free. Why do you think so many Christians are frustrated with the Christian life? They're trying to live it in their own strength. As soon as they fail on their list of to-do things, then they feel defeated and they feel discouraged and they just want to just quit and move on. See, the, the way that it should affect our life is very simple, and that's this. We're delivered from the law. We're delivered from the law. See, the law is something that's external. But understand this. In 2 Corinthians, you can read it on your own. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, we learn this. That the law is external. But when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, God writes His laws on our hearts. He writes His laws on our hearts. We're motivated to do what God wants us to do because we love Him. Because we serve a Master who is a fair Master. Because He has put His, he has put his life and His death on the cross. He has shed His blood for us. It says, therefore, honor Him and glorify Him in your body. I study the Bible because I can't get enough of studying it. And if I studied it because I felt like if I, every day I've got to get up and I have to have my quiet time. Every day I've got to get up and I better study a chapter. Every day I've got to get up and I better study this or I better do that. You know what? I'll get frustrated and I won't even want to study it at all. I study it because when you read it and you look at it and you start to apply things in your life and you see they're true and they're changing your life and it's affecting people around you, you go, I can't wait to study the Bible. You don't have to tell me or make me to study the Bible. I hope every person that comes here says, I come because I can't wait to study the Bible. I can't wait to get there. It's not because if I miss, I'm going to hell. It's not true. Don't come if you don't want to come. But come because when you come, you're learning from God and God's changing your heart and He's changing your life and you see results and you see what's going on and you go, man, I can't get enough of this. I had a guy come to me and say, man, you're driving me crazy. I said, why? What's the matter? He goes, man, you know how, you know how hard it is for me? Oh, man, what? I said, what's the matter? I said, what? He goes, well, I used to play golf every Sunday. Now when I'm golfing, I thought I'm missing something at church. I hate that. I hated going to church. I never went to church. It was boring. It was not relevant. It wasn't real. There was nothing to it. And I couldn't wait. And I was looking at five minutes, seven minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes. Is it done yet? 27 minutes? And 27, I'm just getting rolling. But then it's like, and, and you know, and we've all been there because it's like, okay, I'm doing my duty. Now I want out of here. I used to go to church and afterwards I'd be like, I need to go get a drink. Ah, oh, torture. <sighs> and when you got a guy saying, man, you know what, now I'm golfing and I think I'm missing something at church and I'm missing something that I'm learning from the Bible. And it's like, and you're, you're killing my golf game. <laughs> so, wow, what are we going to do about that? <laughs> what do you think you should do? I think I should learn more about the Bible. Hey, good for you. That's great. See, but that's the way it's supposed to be. You can't force people to live what you believe to be the Christian life. You can't tell people that you have to be in an ABF. You can't tell people you have to be in a small group. You can't tell people that you have to go to two services and evening services and Wednesday night services and all the stuff. You can't make people do that. Why? Because there's something in our nature that says if you tell me to do something, I won't do it even if I wanted to do it before you told me. I wish you wouldn't have told me not to do that or to do that because I wanted to do it and now you told me not to do it and now I have to do it. I hate this. It's like our kids, you know? It's like when they're dating somebody we can't stand, we say, hey, we think that's the one God picked for you to marry. 
cut it right. That's it. I'm just like, I'm sorry. We can't date anymore. My parents like you. That's, isn't that, that's the way it is. We're going to see that when we come back together. So you know what? I mean, here, here's, here, you, know what, you know what it's like? Here's the thing. Here's what I found about living the Christian life, which is actually this, allowing Christ to live through me. I don't get up in the morning saying, I'm not going to lie today. I'm not going to cheat today. I'm not going to steal today. I'm not going to swear today. I'm not going to do this today. I'm not going to do that today. You know what I say? Lord, live your life through me today. You know what I mean? Because I guarantee you, if I live my life trying to think of things that I'm not going to do today, that'll be the first thing that I do. You know what it's like? It's like a baseball coach going out to the mound. You ever see those guys that go out to the mound? They go out to them and they say, hey, look, you know what? Whatever you do, don't throw them a high inside fastball. He goes, he sits back, and the guys wind up. Don't throw them high inside fastball. Don't throw them high inside fastball. Don't throw them high inside fastball, high inside fastball, high inside fastball. Boom! Well, it's like, what is, and the coach goes, what did you do? Oh, I threw him a high inside fastball. Because that's all I can think about, because that's all you told me. Why not say, throw one down low and away? But that's the way we are. We're, I mean, it's like, duh. See, I, I prefer to dwell on the things that are good, the things that are lovely. Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Dwell on these things. The things you have heard and seen in me, Paul says. Dwell on those things. Fill your mind with the things of God that are good and not on the list of things you can't do anymore. I can't do that anymore because I'm a Christian. Hey, you want a drink? Where was the thing where other? Hey, you want a drink? You want a drink? You want a drink? Huh? No, I'm not really. I don't want a drink. Well, well, it's not having nothing to do with drinking, so don't get hung up on this. I'm just using an illustration. That's this. It's like, you know what? No, you know what? I'd rather have a Diet Coke or an iced tea. It's not a question of I can't or I don't. It's a question of this is what I would prefer. I would prefer a Diet Coke. I would prefer an iced tea. And the reason I would prefer that is because I had enough of those days where I drank, and you know what? And I don't miss hugging my toilet. You know what I'm saying? I mean, and, and so that God just said, hey, it isn't about you can't do it or you'll lose your salvation. You can't do it or you won't be a Christian. It's just picking that which is better that God has given me as a substitute. Hey, you know what? I don't concentrate on not lying. I just tell the truth. I don't concentrate on not cheating people. I just concentrate on being honest and doing what's right before God. And it's not that hard to do when Christ lives through you. Let's close with this. Psalm, Psalm 100. Psalm 100. You know, as I was preparing this message, God reminded me of something that I had read probably 15 years ago. And I really hate when he does that because now I have to try to remember where I read it or where I found it. And, and it's like I'm running around the house and if you've got a couple of thousand books to look at, it's like, what book was that in? But in Psalm 100, and I'll explain to you in a minute what it was that, that I was reminded of. But Psalm 100 says, Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God, that it is he who has made us. And not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good, and his loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. Charles Haddon Spurgeon had written something referring to this passage 
that I recalled as I was preparing this message that God reminded me of, and I found it, and I want to share that with you in closing. But he wrote this. He says, Delight in divine service is a token of acceptance. Those who serve God with a sad countenance because they do what is unpleasant to them are not serving God at all. They bring the form of homage, but the life is absent. It says, Our God requires no slaves to grace His throne. He is the Lord of the empire of love and would have His servants dressed in the livery of joy. The angels of God serve Him with songs, not with groans. A murmur or a sigh would be a mutiny in their ranks. The obedience which is not voluntary is disobedience. For the Lord looks at the heart. And if He sees that we serve Him from force and not because we love Him, He will reject our service. Service coupled with cheerfulness is heart service and therefore true. It says, take away joyful willingness from the Christian and you've removed the test of his sincerity. If a man is driven to battle, he is no patriot. But he who marches into the fray with flashing eye and beaming face singing, it is sweet to die for one's country, proves himself to be sincere in his patriotism. That's why I love movies like Braveheart, where you got these guys just saying, Freedom! Man, you don't see anybody shoving them to the front lines. They're saying, I would rather die and be free than to live in bondage. Freedom! Let's go! Man, those battle scenes are awesome. They're great. Ah, hey, 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 I know. But the point I'm trying to make is this. Can we not have the same type of passion and enthusiasm for serving the Lord who is good? Lord, I would much rather serve you voluntarily, cheerfully, joyfully, then reluctantly and begrudgingly try to fill out a list of do's and don'ts? Try to serve God with a joyful heart, with a passion and enthusiasm, because we realize what He has done on our behalf through Jesus Christ and His death on the cross. There are too many Christians who are walking around and defeated because they're failing to keep up with the list of do's and don'ts that are imposed upon them either by themselves or, or by other people who are trying to manipulate and control us in our walk with the Lord. We have freedom in Christ and the freedom is to serve Him. The freedom is to love Him. The freedom is to enjoy His fellowship and His company. The freedom is to come to church if we want or not go to church if we don't want. The freedom is to pick up the Word and to study it if we want or not. To be in an ABF, to go to a beach and be baptized. We have freedom in Christ to make those choices. And what we need to recognize and understand that as we freely choose to do those things that are pleasing to God, that the joy will be magnified and not stifled. We can't tell people how to live their life in Christ. It is Christ living through them and through us. We're to encourage and to challenge each other and pick up the Word of God and understand what it is that's pleasing to God. But once we explain that, then it's up to that person to choose whether or not they will walk in obedience or disobedience. But that's between them and the Lord. We need people, we need Christians, who when the world sees us, sees us that we're filled with joy and we're filled with gladness. And when we say to them, oh, I'm sorry, we can't come because we're going to church. I said, I can't go golfing with you, Sonny, because i got to go to church. You know what kind of message that sends to the person? Sorry for you. I'm teeing it up. I said, man, you know what? I'd love to go golfing with you. I'd love to do it any other day but on Sunday. But, you know, man, we got this great Bible study going on, and I can't believe all the stuff that I'm learning. I can't believe what God's doing in my life. And, man, when I'm learning this stuff and applying this stuff, God, it's changing my life. This is awesome. I'm sorry you got to go golfing today. That's what it means 
to be alive in Christ. That's what it means to be somewhere between license and legalism. That's a wonderful place to be. And you know what I found in my life? When I am at that place, there's no person in the world that can lay some unrealistic guilt trip on me because of something that they're struggling with in their life. Say, hey, you know what? Because I know who I am in Christ, and I know who I believe in, and I know that he is able to keep that which I've given to him against the day of judgment. How about you? Are you serving him in joy? That's a wonderful thing because we got a wonderful master and there is no, there is no burden in serving him. Father, we just thank you and we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.